Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Psachim, daf Kofiud Gimel, 113. Of course, we are one week away from our big seum of Masachet Psachim, which is one week in advance, or less than a week in advance of the actual holiday of Pesach. We know that this is a challenging time for everybody preparing for the holiday. We hope you will join us in the seum nonetheless. Uh, again, that will be 11 a.m. Eastern Seaboard Time in the U.S. and 5 p.m. in Israel. Uh, well, we will welcome you with open arms. Uh, please do register to get the Zoom link um, in advance. Today's daf continues with the you know pithy statements of advice that we saw on the previous daf, and we are going. Yordana, you and I are going to what I call ping pong, you know, through some of the tidbits here. And um, I would say that's, you know, really that's kind of the, the framework that we have here. It's not one particular theme um, but, or, or one particular idea, except for the fact that there are lots of, you know, again, Chazali type of, piece of pieces of advice, some of which make more sense and some make less sense to us in this day and age. Uh, okay. So uh, we have here Amar Rav Larav Asi. He says as follows. Rav Asi, do not live in a city where the horses do not neigh and where the dogs do not bark. And he says, do not live in a city where the mayor is a doctor and do not marry two women and if you do marry two women, then you should marry a third one as well. So this needs a little bit of unpacking. First of all, let's talk about where the horses do not neigh, meaning why would we be talking about a horse as compared to anybody else, any other kind of animal? The idea is that if there's a horse neighing, um, then then that ho- horses will neigh if they hear... No, let me say this the other way around. Um, robbers... The claim is, the presumption is, that robbers will not rob a horse, uh, a house. Sorry, will not rob a house that has a horse, because if they hear a horse neighing, then they will know that the owner of the house that they're robbing will have the means to chase them down, right, and catch them. And if the, presumably they're on foot, so the neighing horse is a good sign then to prevent robbers from coming to your town or your neighbor, you know, to your neighbor and so on. And likewise, where the dogs uh, do not bark, if there's no dogs, then if there's no dogs barking, then there can't be the presumption of, of um, protection, right? The idea that a burglar is much less likely to burgle a, a house with a, a guard dog, a barking guard, guard dog, whatever. I, I know this to be true. A friend of mine, an old friend of mine was a victim of a terror attack in Israel many, many years ago, and her house was the fourth home in on the Yishuv and the first one without a dog. Okay, so on that note, um, the Gemara then continues, right? Do not live in a city where the mayor is a doctor. This is follows on the theme from the previous stuff where you want to make sure that anybody who's in politics will have enough means and attention to govern properly so that a Talmud, a Talmud Chacham shouldn't be a politician because he won't have enough time to learn Torah, but also he won't have enough time to govern. And here you have a mayor who's a doctor. The claim is that he'll be so busy with being a doctor that he won't be able to be a mayor. You're Dana, I you try not lesson? to be insulted with this. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think there's truth. I think there's certain professions that sort of, 
you always have something on your mind. I'm always worried about a patient, worried about something. And so maybe I, you know, now I know I'm not going to run for Congress or anything like that. <laughs> or alternatively, you know, take one at a time. That's it's not that somebody with medical credentials can't be right. a mayor or vice versa. There it's are like, not- yeah, in the United States, there are like some congressmen or senators who were physicians, but they don't practice or do both at the same time. There you go. And do not marry two women. So this uh, is an important reminder, right, that the position that uh, at least Ashkenazim, right, nowadays do not marry two women. I'm not talking about from a legal standpoint. I'm talking about from a halakhic standpoint. The legal standpoint applies to everybody. Um, Ashkenazim do not not because there's a what's called a cherem de Rabbeinu Gershom. There's an injunction against marrying more than one wife from Rabbeinu Gershom in around the year 1000. And the cherem, this injunction, was uh, levied for a thousand years. And then it was recently you know, the presumption is that it was going to be renewed and it was fundamentally renewed. I'm not really sure what that entails or how that was done or if it was in fact done. But the basic presumption is, again, Ashkenazi do not marry more. Ashkenazi men do not marry more than one wife. The issue is, of course, that this is long before the year 1000. So the position of not marrying two women is not it's not because there's a, a recommended or, or an edict against it. Here, it's just a matter of good advice. And the claim is that they will join forces against the man who, who they have both married. So then the claim of if you've married two, then marry a third one as well, because then at the very least, if you have two who are plotting against you, the third will be on your side. Well, you know, I think it's really an observation. Look, I think sometimes they talk about these things with women. Does, that does not always sound good. But if we want to generalize it, I think it's an understanding of some of the complexities of family dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, uh, listen, the I, the fact that it's much more complicated to have multiple partners in a marriage, which is such a strange sentence for me to say to begin with, right? Um, I, I think that it's it's fundamental that the Gemara acknowledge that. Right. And at that time, you know, two wives was still allowed. I don't know that it was always practiced. We don't really see a lot about that in the Gemara with the Tanaim of Amorayim, but it still was allowed. Right. We know uh, the the few people I can think of offhand where we do know something about their wives. They've only got one. So, uh, right. Which is know. interesting. And I think that, um, you know, it may be this was why, you know, they listened to this type of advice. And it just even though it wasn't not allowed, um, which, again, did not come until about the year a thousand with Takanat Rabinu Gershom, which is a whole other topic we will get into today, um, you know, that assert that said polygamy was no longer really allowed anymore. Um, but we don't, I don't, I feel like it was not commonplace and it may be that these were the types of reasons why this was sort of an edict or value of, of Hazal that was listened. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. And there's a whole passage here of things again, that fathers want to teach sons. And so first they start with Rav to his son, Chia. Um, and then there's this interesting piece here and it seems to be things like, don't take drugs, don't leap over a brook, um, don't extract the tooth. Uh, don't provoke a snake and don't provoke an Aramean. But then there's another one, another set of instructions he gives to a different son. Right. So he says to his sons, So he says, I've tried to teach you Torah, right? I've tried to teach you uh, some English translations say Talmudic subjects, but it's not been met with any success. So instead, what am I going to do? I'm going to teach you the ways of the world. In other words, he realizes 
this son is going to have to go into business. He's not going to be a son of the bait me trash. And therefore, he's going to give him very practical business advice. So before we get into what the actual advice is, um, it's more the concept here of what Rav is doing. He really recognized sort of what his son was capable of or sort of what the best path for his son was. And, you know, we always talk about sort of educating a child according to, uh, you know, his best way, the derech that's most appropriate for him. And so we think we see that Rav does this. I don't personally read this as he's saying something necessarily pejorative to him. He's more just saying like, look, I, I, I haven't succeeded in teaching you this. And maybe that's more with a, a twinge of sadness on his part that here Rav had a son who didn't necessarily take to his type of Talmudic teaching. Um, so instead he's saying, okay, I'm going to teach you business. Right. So while the sand is still on your feet, sell your merchandise. Right. So the meaning here is, is that when you have a lot of stock or you just purchased a lot of stock, sell it right away. Right. You want to just always have a, a turnover of whatever it is that you're selling. Right. You should sell because you can sell anything and you'll have regrets later if the price, you know, goes up. Um, so, you know, Oh, wait, what did here? What he's basically saying is, right, you're going to feel you may feel sometimes that you sold whatever you had in stock, you know, too early, because maybe if you had waited, you would get a better price. Um, but he's still saying, but he says, bar mahamra lo except for wine, right, which you should always sell and never have any regrets about. So he's sort of telling him, you know, a few things at the same time. It's better to sell things right away. But when you do sell things right away, you may regret it later because you're sort of not hitting the market when the price goes up. But this is not true for wine. Wine is in a different category because wine can actually turn bad, right? We know wine can eventually turn into vinegar. Um, or maybe it's wine is something that doesn't necessarily have like a huge fluctuation of price, you know, of price changes. So therefore, just sell it whenever you sell it. Right. Open your purse right? So that the customer can put the money inside of your purse and then, you know, open your sack to give the customer his goods, right? So that seems to also be good uh, sort of money sense, right? Kava me aria below kura migra, right? Better a kav from the ground than a core from the roof. So what does this mean? So this is talking about that it's better for somebody to sort of make a, so remember that a core is 100, 108, 180 times the size of a kav. So he's saying it's better to make a small profit for something that's nearby than making a large profit from a business that's far away. Because doing business when you're not really there is much more difficult. And finally, it says, Tamra Bachaluzach Levit Sudana Rehit, right? When there are dates in your date basket, run to the house of the beer brewer, right? So that, in other words, we know, again, we're on this topic of date beer, that in Babel, there was a lot of date beer that people had. Um, and, um, so he's basically saying that even if you have a small amount of, uh, beer, it's a very good idea. Sorry. If you have a small amount of dates, it's a good idea to turn them into beer, which would obviously be something that's more valuable than just having those dates that are lying around. So I think actually all these things are probably business, um, business truths or business principles that still probably hold up today. That, and I'd be curious here from, I'm not in the business world in that same way. Uh, you know, like a merchant or somebody who sells something, if they would agree with most of these principles, but they seem to make a lot of logical sense to me. I find it interesting that Rav, right, he's the same 
the same person who says that the mayor should not be a doctor, right? You have to have enough um, time to give attention to both. I find it interesting that he's able to kind of remove the scholar hat for a few minutes and give business advice. Now, just one, one really quick thing while we're on the topic of beer brewing. I'm a rapapa, right? This is the, the next thing here, right? Right. Had I not brewed beer, Rav Papa says, I would not have become rich. And Ekadamri, there are others who say, I'm a Rav Chista. Rav Chista said, right. It was Rav Chista said, I not brewed beer, I would not have become rich. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit about Rav Papa. We'll talk about Rav Chista another time and just do a little who's who on him. So Rav Papa probably lived around 300 to 375. He's a fifth generation Amora. He's a student of Rava and Abaye, um, and he actually founded a, a different school, a different yeshiva at a city near Sura, uh, which was called Naresh. Um, and uh, the thing to know about him is he is known for his wealth. Um, it seems that his father might have been wealthy, and he also um, became much wealthier uh, by being a beer brewer. So it's just, you know, I wanted to just point out this line because this is one of those things we'll see some other stories about Repubble later on which makes reference uh, to him being a very successful um, businessman. Um, and sometimes also there's even a Gemara later on, we'll see where Rava actually says that maybe he wasn't always so scrupulous in some of his, it's a Gemara and Gittin, of his business practices. But Rav Papa is very identified um, with his wealth. Um, and, uh, you know, this is really this, one of the primary sources for it. He has a lot of sons too, right? Because we mentioned them in the yes, hadron. there's all of those sons that we mentioned about him as well. Yes, so in all CMs that we say, which Rosh that one we will say in a week with everybody, um, you know, we say this, we mentioned these 10 sons um, of Rav Papa. Um, and some people say it's that because whenever he completed uh, a tractate of Talmud or he made a CM of some sort, he would make a very big party um, with, his, uh, with all of his families, uh, with all his family members, with his sons and people like that. Um, you know, the, that passage that we say is actually first mentioned with the Gaonim. So, um, but it's, you know, it's always a very striking part of the scene itself when we mention all of, of Rav Papa's 10 sons. Yes, especially because it's not a name we hear so often nowadays. No, not at all. <laughs> at all. Um, okay. I'm going to jump now to the bottom of Amad Aleph. Um, Amar of Yochanan. There are three that God proclaims about the goodness of these three every single day. So the three who are praiseworthy here is a bachelor who lives in a city, right? A city presumably that has all kinds of uh, temptations and he does not sin. Um, and a poor person who returns a lost object to its owners, meaning despite the fact that he's poor, he still gives it back. He doesn't keep it for himself as newly acquired wealth, so to speak. And uh, lastly, the rich person who does his tithing, the tithing of his produce, which presumably is very plentiful, he does it in private and without publicizing, you know, how wonderful he is that he has so much to tithe and look how much he's giving. Rav Safra, Ravak Hadar Bakrachava. And Rav Safra at this time was a bachelor who was living in the city. So he, the Gemara now continues on top of bet, he feels good about this, right? Tani Tana Kamedarava Rav Safra. This was learned or taught this was the same point before Rav Safra. It's a Hava Panav de Rav Safra. And Rav Safra gets all excited. His face lights up. 
um, you know, presumably that he's included on amongst these who God praises every day. Amarlo Rava, love Kagonmar. No, no, not like you, says Rava, meaning why not? Because presumably he's living a, a rabbinic life, right? Meaning he's, he's the assumption or the Rava's assumption anyway in discussing Rav Safa is that he's doing the right thing anyway. Ella Kagon, Rav Hanina, Rav Ushaya, these two, Rav Hanina and Rav Ushaya were put in a more more difficult position where they might have been more at risk of giving into temptation. The Havu Ishkafe Ba'arad Yisrael. What did they do? Rav Hanina and Rav Ushaya were cobblers, shoemakers. Um, and they were in, in the land of Israel, right? Ba'arad Yisrael is in the Eretz Yisrael. And they would sit in the marketplace where the prostitutes would frequent, I guess. They would make the shoes of the prostitutes. And the and the these harlots or prostitutes, however you want to call them, would come into the shops, right? Or come into where they would uh, be working. And uh, they would they would look at these uh, at Rav Hanin and Rav Ushaya. Uh, um, and the two rabbanim did not look up. Did not look up. They did not lift their eyes to look at the women. Um, so the gemara here says that you know, um, they the these same women, right? They were so impressed with this behavior by these rabbanim that when they would swear. Right when they would would take a name in vain, so to speak, right, and to to emphasize how much they meant what they were saying, they would say by the lives of the holy sages of Eretz Yisrael, meaning that this is a and and the point being, of course, that this is the kind of bachelor that Shamayim that that the heavens are praising every single day, meaning if they can be so chaste in the face of temptation that is literally literally under their nose. I, it's a very interesting story. I mean, it, first of all, the idea that. The story is there uh, to sort of, in a way, sort of tell Rav Safra, like, no, we're not really talking about you. And I don't know if in a way that's a little bit giving, uh, uh, trying to, I don't know, embarrassment's not the right word, but sort of telling him, like, don't think it's so good that you're not married or something like that. Um, but the example that they're giving here, I, there's something so extreme about it. I guess I didn't, I didn't hear the comment to Rav Safra as a dig as much as a as a credit meaning he's not if he's not in a position of being literally the temptation all around him then it's presumably easier to remain uh you know to avoid the sin so the claim that there's a much more extreme situation that if you're in that situation that's where Torah is that's where Shemayim is going to praise you I didn't see it as a dig as a software. I thought it was kind of nice, you know, a compliment that, you know, you're not the one who's in the need of praise. I read it totally differently. I love when we read things differently. (laughs) No, because it just shows there's (laughs) different, everyone brings different things to it. I read it as a little bit of a dig. Um, But I would, I would note also that I'm not sure that it's fair to Rav Safra to say that just because he's not literally the cobbler of the prostitutes, that there's no temptation right. for him. Meaning the idea that anybody can be swayed or, you know, life is more complicated than oh, the most extreme I, that case that we could sure find. Um, I, I'm curious to hear people who listen to this, how they read this story, you know, dig or praise. Um, I'm going to go on then to the next piece here. Um, and there's a very 
uh, interesting passage here where it talks about they, they go through a bunch of things of like threes of things, five of things. But they start here with the, with uh, this is the first three. And they're talking here um, about three likable people. And then they move on to three people that Hashem does not like. Right, somebody who speaks one thing with his mouth while meaning another thing in his heart. I think that's an obvious one and easy to understand. Somebody who knows testimony that could affect his friend, right? That maybe could be positive for his friend and doesn't testify in his behalf. And I think this shows the importance of really, you know, coming to court and speaking up on behalf of somebody if you can save somebody. So third one here that I'm more interested Somebody who testifies, who sees his friends do some type of sexual transgression. Now, many of the Mepharshim explain here, it actually would apply to any type of case where you see your friend doing something bad, but they're almost giving the most extreme, like even as extreme as committing an erva, some type of sexual transgression, right? Which we consider to be some of the worst types of transgressions and testifies against him alone. So we know that in a Jewish court of law, we never, except for a few exceptions, we don't take a testimony if it's one witness. We have to have two witnesses. And so the idea here is that, that you would go up to the Besden to say, I saw so-and-so do this bad thing, even as bad as something that was erva, right? And But you know that there's no second witness. You know that you're the only person who saw it. That is not a good person. We don't like the person who tries to do this because we know that we don't rely. And so therefore, in the end, what are you really doing? You're just basically uh, you're just basically gossiping about that person. And so they uh, basically tell a story with this, right? So um, there was a story in which Tuva sinned and Zigud came by and testified against him before Rapapa, before the Besson of Rapapa. Nagzi Lizigud, so Rapapa, instead of basically punishing Tuva, he administered, he gave lashes to Zigud. Amarle, Zigud says to Rapapa, Tuva Chata Vizigud Minagerd, right? Tuva sinned and you're giving me lashes. Amarle, Rapapa says, Ain Ketiv, he says, Ain Dichtiv, right? He says, Yes, because what it's written, now he quotes a Pasuk. That's in Devarim Perigid Ted Pasuk Tetvav, chapter 19, verse 15. Lo yakum echad be'ish, right? A single witness should not stand up to testify against anybody. But be, right? And you testified against him by yourself. So you knew that your testimony wasn't going to be acceptable. Shame Rabba Alma Ka Mapikat Be, right? So you basically just you you put you put slander out against him. And that is actually deserving of Malkud because you were basically over, you basically, you transgressed a lotase, a, pro- a prohibitive uh, action. So it's a very interesting thought. And I think it talks about sort of the importance of maintaining the integrity, first of all, of our court system, that we really only accept um, two witnesses. And I think it's even showing us why we do that, right? That we don't care how bad the sin is or what it is that you saw, but it's really important that something always be witnessed by two people because when it's one person, there's always the possibility that the reason why you're saying something is just to speak badly of a person and, or ruin their reputation. And therefore, really, the idea of having two witnesses actually makes a lot of sense. So, But then the Gemara goes on and says something even more interesting. 
Amar Rabbi Shmuel Bar Rav Yitzchak Amar Rav. So Rav Shmuel Bar Rav Yitzchak says the name of Rav. Mutar l'sinotel. But even if you see your friend commit some type of terrible act and you can't testify against him because you're only the person who saw it, it is permitted to hate him. And so I think here, at least the Gemara is recognizing that if it's a case where you really did see something, and even though you can't bring that person to court, we recognize that like people are people and you are going to hate that person. And it's mutar. It is allowed for you to hate that person. And I'm not going to go through the whole proof that they bring, but they bring a very extended proof here uh, to talk about, you know, how exactly it is. Is it a Jew? Is it a non-Jew? Um, and, you know, how do they learn that it's exactly, they, they take a pasuk exactly from Vayikra. And from that pasuk, they basically learn that you are allowed to actually, um, you know, w- that you're allowed to actually um, hate this person. And it's specifically, right, they, they conclude at the end, um, that it's specifically a case where he saw him do, um, where he saw him do, um, do an erva. Um, and so normally a person would sort of have to, you know, you, you, you are allowed to scold a little bit somebody who, who does something bad. Um, and, um, but, but here, what they're trying to say is what the, the commentators say here is that if it's really an example of some type of erva that you see a person do, and it's, it's, it's a known, uh, a known hate, a known trans, transgression, uh, you don't even have to get to the point where you rebuke that person. You're actually just allowed to hate that person. And again, I don't think it's that it's trying, it's saying it in a judgy way of like, you should be judging that person or something like that. I think this is really much more of a reflection of human nature, that when you know something very bad about a person, and you may be in a situation where you can't share it about a person, you you may really dislike that person, you may grow to hate that person. And so in a way, I think they're trying to use Sukim to justify what would be a very normal human emotion. So just on that point of the normal human emotions, I want to note that this is another daf where there's no real sense of whitewashing, right? There's, you know, the the praise to Rav Khanina Rav Ushaya who are working in the marketplace where there are prostitutes, right? This is this is much um, grittier, I think, than we want to think of Chazal and sweetness and light and keeping Torah and all like that. And I feel like you know, there's a, a fair bit of whitewashing today in terms of we're going to pretend that we don't have human nature. We're going to pretend that we're all tzaddikim. We're going to pretend that nobody ever does the wrong thing. And we're going to live in a plane that has nothing to do with the really reality of the way we really live. And I think that the Gemara here is like a very sharp rebuke against that kind of, you know, mischaracterization of what it means to I, live a Torah life. No, but I totally now agree I can get with you. I mean, box, I think but... the story before about the cobblers and the prostitutes like this staff and the Gemara in general, but we really see it on this staff is willing to get into sort of the underbelly of life that we sometimes don't like, that we like to pretend sometimes doesn't exist. And this staff isn't scared of it. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of nice, not nice things in the world. Sometimes we may be presented with situations that are not nice, right? Like the cobblers and the prostitutes. We may see things that are not nice and we may have very human reactions to them as well. So I've got just one small little piece left. And this is, in fact, where, you know, if we just talked before about where Shamayim, where the heavens is praising people, this is, these are seven who are menudin l'shamayim, who are ostracized, who are excommunicated. It's not, it doesn't mean technically excommunicated. Ostracized is a better translation. 
uh, by heaven. And it's an interesting list. Elohim. Yehudi she'en lo isha. So here, Yordana, you've got uh, Rav Safra's covered here as well, right? If he's if he's praised or if he's not praised. Here we have a Jew who does not, a Jew meaning a Jewish man, who is not married. Ve'sheyesh lo isha ve'en lo banim. Or if he does have a wife, but he doesn't have children. Umi she'esh lo banim ve'en megadlan the Talmud Torah. Or someone who does have children, but doesn't raise them uh, to be Torah scholars, or at least to learn Torah, right? To engage in Torah study. And this, I feel, is like a little bit of a reverse dayenu, meaning each cat, each level, you know, okay, so now they got married. Okay, but it's not good enough. You still need the children. And, oh, you have children? It's not good enough. You have to teach them Torah. Umisha, and here we continue to some of a few other things. Umisha, Anybody who doesn't have tefillin on his head and tefillin on his arm and tzitzit on his garment and a mezuzah at his opening, you know, the door to his house. And again, here's this example of somebody who prevents feet, uh, shoes from his feet, which we saw the other day. And some will add even one who does not sit with a group that is participating in a in a feast in the celebration of a mitzvah, meaning if you keep yourself apart from that from that group. So I find it really interesting that here we've got several different mitzvot, meaning tefillin and mezuzah and, and tzitzit, you know, being, you know, the kind of thing that you can look at as optional, but, and so like no court is going to come after you. This is not a hate. This is not a sin in the way of a violation of Torah, Torah law in, in that kind of way. It's not a matter of witnesses. It's not a matter of punishment. On the other hand, this is, you know, basically a claim that, you know, if you don't live on the up and up, then then you're not going to get the smiles from a Shemayim either. Right. And it, so that's in this case, the idea that, you know, Shemayim smiles on you if you're a bachelor who lives in a city and avoids sin. But here's the flip side of that, which is, yeah, but you should first, you know, get married and have children and teach them Torah. Um, and that's really the preferred way to go. And likewise, to to engage in mitzvot that might even be technically optional, but so what? You know, so so you should still be doing them. I'm not sure that we would call mezuzah optional, per se. Um, and again, this point with the shoes, I think, is interesting. You know, in Torah, shoes are always treated as, meaning wiping the dust or cleaning the dust from one's feet is always a matter of uh, preventing idolatry. I don't know what the significance is here. You know, it, uh, you know, in terms of, I do think that there's a cultural norm that we're miss that I am missing in understanding exactly why this would be just so bad that Shemayim would not smile on, would, you know, would ostracize somebody who. Yeah. It, it seems a little, uh, it does seem a little bit extreme. <laughs> well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about all these random, different, varied pieces of advice. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go, go and learn.